Um, all right, so let's, uh, we've kind of looked at a couple sections of the book now. Uh, I'm going back to our Isaiah handout. So again, here's two through four is a little unit that was assembled and kind of put together. Um, this next section is really complex. <laughs> um, if you, as if what came before wasn't complex. <laughs> um, so here's, here's what's fascinating. Okay, you guys got to track with me. There's a complex bunch of stuff here. I'm going to explain all that. And I, if I can explain this here, then I think I can explain it to the Western students because you're surely smarter than they are. And, uh, and we'll see if this is put together. So somebody sat down. What we have here is a massive, massive poetry and uh, from all the way from chapter 12, excuse me, from chapter 5, <laughs> all the way through from chapter 12. And these poems here at the end, we just read a bit of one, and 11 and 12, uh, they seem to kind of stand, stand alone in a unique way. Um, what we're going to see is there's a massive material here in chapter 5 and in chapters 9 and 10 that seem like they originally all were uh, read together as one section. But somebody, the author of Isaiah, has cracked open section by section and plopped in here uh, a whole section of narrative, narrative and poetry. So that's in my, at least that's my way of diagramming what uh, what this, what this all looks like. So let me show you why why I think that. Um, let's just start in chapter five. <clears throat> This is, this is one of my favorite uh, poems, poems of Isaiah. It's a love poem, where he adapts the form of an ancient love poem, but it ends in a terrible breakup. <laughs> so he opens up. I will sing to the one that I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of its stones. Right? You can imagine society. He plowed the ground, removed all the stones that would uh, obstruct anything from growing in it. He planted the vineyard with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. He even cut out a wine press that would be a large hole in the ground that's uh, sealed in, filled in with rocks and so on. So you can put all the grapes in and stomp on them in a party with your friends. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. He waited. Wine press is ready. It's growing. And what does he get? Wild grapes. But it yielded only bad, bad fruit. So there's a go. Just a little poem right here. Oh, that's interesting. It's like a parable almost. What it is? It's like a parable that Jesus would tell. Short to the point. So what does this mean? This little poem about a beloved who had a vineyard and so on. Now, you who dwell in Jerusalem and men of Judah, why don't you judge between me and my vineyard? Oh, who's talking? Who's talking here? Who is this? Hmm. What more could have been done for my vineyard? What, what more could I have done for it? And when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'm going to break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland that will not be pruned or cultivated, 
briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Okay, let's pause real quick here. Hmm. So what was this little poem about, this little story about the vineyard? So this is God in Israel. He planted them in the land, expected good grapes to grow, and not only did it not produce good grapes, it produced horribly stinky, bad fruit. The word for bad fruit uh, in, uh, in, in verse 3 is really stinky things, be'ushim, stinky things. It produced stinking, stinking grapes. And then, what does he say here? You dwellers of Jerusalem, what more could I have done? Now, I'm going to destroy the vineyard. Boom. And then look at verse 7. Just in case you didn't clue in, <laughs> he gives a little commentary just to help you. Okay, now, so just so you know, the vineyard of the Lord God Almighty, it's the house of Israel and the men of Judah and the garden of his delight. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress. So there you go. It's a little, little poem here. Now, just a couple things because this is fun. This is another... Uh, little place where he rhymes uh, in verse 7 chapter 5 verse 7 so it says uh, he looked for justice and the word for justice is mishpat but instead he saw mispach bloodshed he looked for righteousness tzedakah but instead cries of distress tzedakah Looked for tzedakah, but just got tzedakah. And cries of distress are cries of the oppressed and of the poor. Uh, so he's, uh, he's turning this image on its head here. Now, um, uh, this, one's, this one's for free. But uh, look at the beginning words of, of chapter 5. It's a little parable about God and his vineyard and what God did to prepare his vineyard and set everything up for success. Did anyone hear any echoes, anything... Anything? Oh, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. I didn't think of that. But yes, it is imagery from Song of Solomon. I'm thinking here about about the teachings of Jesus. Yes, yeah, the parable of of the tenants here. So keep your thumb here uh, and go to the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew 21. Matthew 21, uh, verse, verse 33. So this is Jesus has gone in Jerusalem. Um, he's cleared out the temple of the money changers and so on. So he, what he show? He, he comes into Jerusalem. Everybody's calling him the Messiah. And after bearing that title, he waltzes into the temple and acts like he owns the place. <laughs> All right? And remember, what's the promise to David? What's the Messiah going to come and do? It will be a father-son relationship, and he will build a house for my name, right? That's what 2 Samuel 7, Jesus waltzes in, and he said, this sure ain't the house that, uh, that God intended to be built. And uh, so everyone, they start giving total grief here. What do you think? Who are you? Who do you call yourself? By what authority do you do this? And then he tells a bunch of parables. One of them is this, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it. And he built a watchtower. Anybody, come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? So then, then he turns the parable of Isaiah into a whole new parable. So he develops the, the metaphor in even another step here. And it becomes a parable that he put land tenants over it. And then the master comes, the land tenants, and, and I, I 
you may or may not know the parable, but it's great. Here. So and then he sends the son to the, to the vineyard, to the tenants who are supposed to be overseeing it. And what do the tenants do to the son who comes to confront them? They kill him. They kill him. So Jesus has taken this little poem of Isaiah and even readapted it. And he just assumes that you know what the message of Isaiah was. And then he uses it. And his hearers would totally get it. You know, they would be like, ooh, good one. You know, that was clever. You know. Oh, about the vine and the branches? Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, once you, again, if you soak yourself in the prophets, you'll never read Jesus' teaching the same way again. It's every, everything he says has been soaked in the prophets, like good marinated steaks. <laughs> you know, it's just, you just, every bite is just, you see the prophets. Okay. Uh, so this section begins with this little uh, poem here, this little love poem about uh, God and his vineyard. Then, uh, then look at verse, uh, verse 8. And what, uh, what is verse 8? How does it begin? Whoa. whoa. Do we all have whoa here? Yeah. Any other translations? What sorrow? What sorrow? So in Hebrew, it's hoy. Hoy. So it gets translated as whoa. Uh, look at verse 11. How does it begin? Hoy, hoy. Whoa, whoa, whoa to you. Look at verse 18. What do you got? Whoa, whoa, woe to those who draw... S- okay, sorry, let's go back. I want to check. Go to verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house... This is verse 8. Add house to house, join field to field, till no space is left and you live alone in the land. So this is a big thing in the Sinai Covenant. The land, the land belongs to who? Yeah, not to Israel. It belongs to God. And so the way they're supposed to structure how they live in the land is always supposed to leave enough land to grow excess for the poor and the widow and so on to come and glean in, in the fields after they've harvested and so on. And essentially, uh, at least around Jerusalem, they've gone on a buying spree, <laughs> so there's no excess land to grow anything excess for the poor anymore. That's what he's getting at at verse 8. Uh, verse 11. Woe to those who ri- rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. So they're out there partying. And they're totally oblivious to what's happening in, in their times and what God is up to. Verse, uh, verse 18. Whoa, woe to those, this is, this is a great image, who drag their sin along with cords of deceit. And they drag their wickedness as like ropes of a cart. <laughs> Such a great image. It's like you're dragging your sin around with ropes itself made of the horrible things that you're doing. Like you can't get... You can't lose it. It keeps following you. And that's because you're dragging it along. It's such a great metaphor. Verse 20. What do we find? Woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine (laughs) and champions at mixing drinks. Now, is he just lambasting drinking in and, of, in and of itself? Look what he says in verse 23. These are people who are actually so drunk that they can't administrate justice in the community. I, who's, getting, who's being accused here? Not just anybody. It's the leaders of the people. The leaders are supposed to be uh, uh, acquitting, acquitting uh, uh, the innocent and so on, but instead they acquit the guilty for a bribe and they deny justice. 
to the innocent. So what do we have here in chapter 5? It's a collection of woe poems, right? It's a collection of woes. Um, Now it continues, uh, so this is what chapter 5 is made up of. And then look at uh, chapter 6. What do we have in chapter 6? Yeah, it's a big, it's in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Oh, it's just a big, long narrative. What about uh, uh, chapter 7? When Ahaz, son of Jotham, was just like, whoa, where'd the poetry go? I was really into these woe oracles here, these woe, these woe poems. And then, whoa, that, what happened here? Um, chapter 8. The Lord said to me, it's a little story about him writing stuff on a, on a scroll. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, verse 11, chapter 9, and so on. Um, and then go down to chapter 9, uh, verse, verse 8. The Lord has a, sent a message against Jacob that will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride in the arrogance of their hearts, arrogance of the heart, what chapter are we thinking here? Remember the arrogance theme from chapter 2 and so on? Bricks have fallen down, but we're just going to rebuild new ones. Oh, sure, Yahweh's allowed us to be judged and our cities to be destroyed. We'll just build new new ones, you know, whatever. Um, Let's see. So we have this this poem that reads very similar to what we saw in chapter 5. And then, but lo and behold, look at chapter 10, verse 1. What do we find? Woe, woe to those who make unjust laws, who issue oppressive decrees. Look at verse 5. Chapter 10, verse 5. Woe, woe to the Assyrian, to the rod of my anger, and so on. So the woes just pick up again in chapter, in chapter 10. So this is, why, uh, this is why I say, and there's another... Um, ooh, can I show you just one more thing? Who, who's lost right now? You guys tracking with me? So no, I'm showing the continuity of these two sections. And it's sort of like 6, 7, 8, and 9, just part of 9 got plopped down right in the middle of a, a bunch of woe poems. So look at, uh, yeah, that's right. Look at, uh, go back to chapter 9 and look at uh, verse, hmm, verse 12. Excuse me, that's a typo on your handout there. That should be 9, 9 12 right here. Chapter 9, verse 12, there's a little phrase here. It says, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. He's bringing judgment on Israel, and for all this, he's still got more in store. (laughs) He's still going to bring more judgment. Look at chapter 9, verse 17. Look at the end of verse 17. How does it end? Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. Upraised. Look at the end of verse 21. Same, same refrain here. Yet for all this, his anger is turned away, his hand is still upraised. So this, this is like a little poetic refrain here, how the, po- how the poems and the woe poems have been put together with this little repeating poetic refrain right here. Go back to chapter 5 with me. Remember chapter 5 was all these woe Woe uh, poems. And look at chapter 5, verse 25 with me. 
And look at the very end of verse 25, and what do you, what do you find there? Yes, that same refrain right there. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. So here's, here's what I think what's happened here. <clears throat> um, someone, is it Isaiah or whoever is collecting this material, they had a whole collection here of woe poems. And notice what most of the woes were about. They're accusing the people of injustice, especially the leaders of injustice. And he's going to bring a hammer in a big way on, uh, on, on the people of Israel, the judgment that we read about earlier. And just when you think the judgment's finished, there's going to be more. Right? Because even for all this, his hand will not yet turn away. And so this is a whole section here that was united by this theme and so on. And someone uh, has come along and plopped a, plopped a whole bunch of narratives right into the middle of these woe poems. Does that make sense here? Mm-hmm. So again, this is the whole thing about the M.C. Escher hands. So we're reading along, and you might not even see this, but let's stop and pay attention to the structure and the architecture. Who's done this? Why? Someone wants us to see uh, that there's a whole wave after wave after wave of, of judgment coming on Israel. Why? Why? How is this all going to work out? What about God's plans? Have we heard a bit about the Messiah? What's going to happen here? And that's what uh, this little block of stories in the middle section <clears throat> is going to be about. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into uh, this narrative block here in the center with the time that we have left. You guys doing okay? We might just hit chapter 6 in a big way and then begin with the rest next week. Does that sound alright to you? Okay, cool. Because chapter 6 is awesome. There's a world of important things going on in Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 6, well, let's just dive in and start reading, and then we'll unpack it. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, now you may, if you have, you can put your thumb, go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and Isaiah was doing his prophesying during the reigns of four kings. And where, where did Isaiah fall in the scheme? There's four kings named, chapter 1, verse 1. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. So this is when the first king that Isaiah lived and worked under passed away. So Isaiah's already been doing his stuff for a while. That's kind of the point here. This isn't the beginning. Many, uh, does anyone have a little heading from your translations at the top of chapter 6? Isaiah's what? Vision of the Lord. Vision of the Lord. This NIV has Isaiah's commission. Isaiah's commission. So, commission implies that this is how things got started. But somebody, at least whoever put the book together, if they wanted to tell us that this is how things got started, why didn't they put it at the beginning? (laughs) So, somebody wants us to see that Isaiah's already been at work with his message here. And what do you think the response is going to be to his message so far? You know? The ideal response would be humble repentance, right? But uh, that, that's not the response um, as you read certain parts of 1 through 5. So we're diving in here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high 
and exalted. And we're thinking what? What chapter? High and exalted. Two. Remember chapter 2. There's going to be a day coming. The proud will be humbled. And who alone will be exalted in that day? Yahweh, the Lord. So this is a, this is a fascinating image. This is like a vision experience he's having here. Chapter 6. I saw the Lord. <laughs> Which you might think, wait, I thought you can't do that. I thought you would like burn alive or something if you die. If you see the Lord, right? No man can see me and live. The Lord told Moses. But here you go, straight up. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And then he says, well, here's what I actually saw here. I saw the train of his robe filling the temple. So in this, in this vision, he's in the temple. And think about how the temple is set up. You have the holy place with like the different elements that are there, the altar of incense, the table with the bread, and so on. And then there's a large curtain, thick curtain, and what's on the other side of that curtain? Right? So the most holy place and uh, the ark with the, these, the things. <laughs> the things, right? The, the cherubim. The cherubim. Uh, and here they're called by a different name. And the image is that this is Yahweh's throne. He sits above the cherubim. That's what he's called in the Psalms, the one seated above the cherubim. And so, but Yahweh is so high and exalted, he actually just sees what? He just sees like his feet. Right? He just sees the, the, the bottom half of his robe spilling off. So it's a royal image. He's sitting on his throne. He's exalted. And he just sees the, this bottom half here. Above him were, they're not called uh, cherubim here. They're called what? Seraphim. Yeah, seraphim. Now, first off, what are these things? What? <laughs> okay, what are they not for sure? Cherubim. Little babies. Yeah, they're not little babies. <laughs> right. Okay, now let's just make that real clear. So I don't know what comes, I mean, cherubim. Oh, hey, good, good, great. That's great. That's good. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. So I, this is wonderful. See, so here we go. This is, no, that's not right. This is bad right here. So somehow, I don't know, in the history of European tradition, the caravim became that. Um, <laughs> so the way that the caravim and the seraphim, they're two ways of calling the same thing. And these are guardians of the divine presence. And when Ezekiel sees them, you know, he gets freaked out because they're these animal-like crazy creatures, but human-like also. Um, and they play the same role as, uh, say, for example, like uh, the Sphinx does around the pyramids of Egypt. So it's an animal-like figure who is a spirit, is a being of some sort, angelic being that is the guardian of the divine presence. This was this a common, common idea in ancient and Eastern cultures. And so uh, the Hebrew Bible picks this up and it, it uh, develops this in, in a big way. So, and the word seraph means on fire. So this is some burning, fiery, animal, human creature. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying, which uh, makes sense of his response here in a moment. So, and they have a bunch of wings, six wings. With two, these things are flying, and, excuse me, with two, they cover their faces. They can't even look at the exalted uh, royal lord. With two, they're covering their feet, and with two, they're flying. And they're calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, Holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He's the transcendent one. He's the creator. He's the high and exalted 
one. It's just all this imagery of Isaiah here. He's, he's, he's fearfully transcendent. He's the Holy One of Israel. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah breaks out in a Chris Tomlin worship song. Holy, holy. <laughs> no, 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 especially not here. <laughs> so no, no. What is, he's, what is his response here? Absolutely, he melts. He melts. Oh, yeah, whoa, hoy, hoy, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. Notice this first person narrative here. So we shift. This is not third person. He said, and so on. This is, this is a little, clearly this is a little section that Isaiah himself penned. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Clean and unclean. What chapters are we thinking about here? We know that people need to be cleaned, right? From chapter 1, they need to be cleansed. We, we, there's the image of the filth of the people of Jerusalem from chapter 3 that gets cleansed in chapter 4. My eye, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So then one of the burning things flew to me with a, also a live burning coal in his hand, a fiery creature holding a fiery coal, which he had taken from the tongues on the altar and with it, he touched my mouth. So again, I, we, because maybe we've, if you're familiar with the passage, you've read it and you know this turns out good. But if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, oh, this guy, is, he's done for. Right? He's going to get incinerated. That's what's about to happen right now. The, the transcendent power of the holy creator is coming to burn this guy up. You know, that's such a crazy image. But it, with it, he touched my mouth and he said, look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Oh, wait a minute, what? Atonement? <laughs> so this is the first time the word atonement happens in the book here. So there's going to be this fiery experience that Isaiah undergoes that results in his guilt being taken away and his sin being atoned for. So that's a strange image. And it doesn't occur anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. How do you burn something up like consume it and then that is what atones for its sin this is, this is a brand new idea where is this coming from then I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send who will go for us and I said here I am send, send me so, so get the, the vision here so Isaiah has a vision of the holy exalted creator his sin is exposed Right? As he stands there before the, the Holy Creator. And what is his response? Yeah, totally. So he has, he has a right response. He has a humble response. So it's almost as if he's experiencing chapter 2 in that moment. The day of Yahweh. Right? The Holy Transcendent Creator. And what's his response? He humbles himself. And as he humbles himself, what does God, does God burn him up? Kind of. Right? Kind of. Uh, he experiences a burning of some, ex of some kind that removes his uncleanness, his, his moral defilement, and atones for his sin. So again, this is one of these chapters here that's planting the images. 
Like, so Isaiah was able to undergo a judgment. Remember, the whole people is supposed to undergo a fiery judgment. What did chapter 4 say? He's going to clean Jerusalem with a spirit of fire. It's going to come through. So we're meant to put all this together. Is somehow, is what Isaiah is experiencing a picture of what the whole people will experience? A fiery judgment, and somehow their sin will be atoned for? But how? How will this all take place? To which the answer is, Keep reading. Turn the page, right? So, <clears throat> so Isaiah has this experience. He's transformed. He's judged. And then he is now sent to go to the people. And so what's his commission? Verse 9. God says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving or uh, getting what's going on. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay, how are we doing? <laughs> okay, so in other words, what's happening here is that Isaiah's message... You read chapters 1 through 5, and you can see he's, he's beckoning what comes. Let's reason together. Turn, 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 turn. And then at some point in chapter 5, with that refrain of his anger, his wrath, his judgment is not turned away, you begin to see like, no, they've reached the point of no return. And so now Isaiah's same words of judgment are now going to have the opposite response of what they're intended to accomplish. They were meant to accomplish repentance, but the people are too hard. And so now his commission, whether he likes it or not, is he's going to uh, give the same message and it will now have the effect of actually hardening the people because they want him to go away <laughs> and they want, him, they want him to stop talking here. So is what's interesting, so again, it's not like Israel's all innocent and then Isaiah comes and speaks this message that they intentionally can't understand, Right? The whole point is that he's been communicating this message and they have not turned. And so now they've reached a point of no return. And they're going to experience the judgment no matter what. When Jesus tells his parable about the four soils and the disciples come to him and they say, why do you speak in parables? Do you remember what line he quoted? He quoted these very lines right here. So, and again, so we think, oh, what, Jesus intentionally excluding people? Like, what's, what's going on here? But in all the Gospels, Jesus has already been at work and the leaders of Jerusalem have already rejected him. And so he quotes this line right here and he says, here we go, it's Isaiah all over again. So here I am announcing the kingdom of God and the people who ought to be humbly accepting it and repenting and turning to God are now going to be the people who this message is going to harden and drive them towards judgment. But what is the judgment that happens at the climax of all of the Gospels? Not the overthrowing of Jerusalem, <laughs> but the death of the Messiah. So Jesus, well, well, that's Isaiah 53, but we're not there yet. So, so anyway, so this is, this is where this is all going here. It's very, very fascinating. Okay, chapter, verse, look at verse 11. This is great. Then Isaiah says, this is a great question then. How long, Lord? How long? If the people are going to be hardened and experience judgment, like what, what about your promises to Abraham, to David? How long is this all going to go down? And he answered, until cities are ruined 
and without inhabitant, until houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. So what's going to happen here? Someone's going to come through the land of Israel and ravage it. And we're beginning, where did we get hints of this? The land being ravaged and stripped bare and so on. From from chapter 1, right? Chapter 1. Somebody's going to come through. And if we are thinking about our our, uh, historical timeline here, this is precisely what these two events represent. Assyria coming through and Babylon coming through, taking them out. But, right, as the things seem very dark and very bleak, Verse 13 gives us this little, uh, this little bright light here. So, even though a tenth remain, will remain in the land, it again will be laid waste. So, kind of get the image here. Uh, just to be clear, Isaiah is standing. When you hear the king he's standing like right here, right before. And so, there's going to be a judgment. The northern kingdom is going to be taken out. And there's going to be a little remnant left, a tenth remnant, who's continuing on for a little bit. What is he referring to here? To Judah, yes. There's going to be a little bit left. And what will happen to Judah? What's going to happen to that tenth that's remaining afterwards? It, again, will be laid waste. He's referring to the taking out of Judah right there. But then look what he says right here. But... Like a terebinth tree or like an oak tree leaves its stump when it's cut down, there's going to be a holy seed in the stump in the land. Did you get the image here? So here, let's draw this one because food coma is sitting in. What do you think? Huh? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Okay. All right. So he uh, said it's actually it's like a big tree and it's going to be chopped down, laid waste. Uh, and that's the northern kingdom being taken out. Then what's going to happen? So, fire. <laughs> fire come down. And it's going to burn the whole thing. So that it's like, uh, it's like roasting now. Smoking. It's just been burned. But then he says, after that burning, there's going to be a little what? In the stump. Yeah, a little, a little seed. This is the word zera, right here. A little... A little branch is going to shoot up here. A little seed. And we're like, well, yeah, I've heard of branches and seeds before, right? Where did we hear about this? In chapter 4. Um, about the branch of the Lord being in the land here. Now here it's joined to this metaphor of a tree cut down, and now it's like new growth coming out. Actually, you know what? Jessica, I've been, I've been using this image to talk about Isaiah 6 for a long time, and she was like, that would never happen. That's not how stumps have new growth. Stumps have new growth out the sides. <laughs> like this. Like that. So actually, I suppose that would be more botanically correct. <laughs> um, so there's going to be a, holy, a little holy seed that will be a stump in the land. Remember chapter 4 said the branch of the Lord will be glorious. And who will be left in Jerusalem afterwards? A little surviving remnant. Afterwards, remember chapter one, who is it who will survive the judgment? It's the repentant and so on. So we're getting this image again that on the other side of judgment, the roasting stump, there will be 
a seed. Now, what is the seed right here? Is it the surviving remnant? Um, or is it the Messiah? Yes, it's a holy seed. Yep, exactly. So you're just going to have to wait on that one. Chapter 65 and 66 will clarify for us, but that's a long ways away right now. So um, that's, where, that's where chapter 6 leaves us. So what I've done here in your notes is kind of what's happened here in chapter 6 is really the whole, this is the whole book is contained for you right here in this scheme of chapter, uh, uh, chapter 6. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So you have uh, rebellious, rebellious Judah. The land is desolated. You have a tenth that's remained. Uh, it's going to be burned. And then you have a holy seed that's going to survive out the other side. What is the holy, the holy seed? Well, it could be the Messiah. It could be this remnant of the repentant that's afterwards. Um, but that's, that's what's to come here. So again, someone uh, in the midst of all these woe poems has begun here with chapter 6 to remind us that judgment is still not the last word. God's eye is still on redeeming and restoring and accomplishing his big overall plan uh, to bring blessing to the nations. And so then what follows is then a section of stories here in chapter 7, 8, and 9. And... Uh, at least just to highlight, we'll dive into these next Wednesday. But chapter 7 has the Emmanuel uh, prophecy. The, uh, the virgin or the, the young woman will be with child to give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Chapter 9 has the Christmas card poem. A son is given to us. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. The son, his name is called Almighty God. And then uh, the king, the sprout from the line of Jesse and the lion and the lamb lying together. So uh, what's happening here then is the messianic hope is picked up from chapter 4 and developed in full, full detail, or at least in a lot more detail. Uh, but we're going to do that next Wednesday because it's 3 and you look tired. I love Isaiah. Can you tell I like Isaiah? I just think it's just the most... Here's the thing, I have a difficult time actually reading poetry. You put that book of E.E. E. Cummings poetry yes. on my desk, and I, it's so funny, because I was like, I want to, want to read this, but I, <laughs> but I don't. But I love reading Isaiah. I don't know. So, sorry, Josh. Anyway, so I hope this has been helpful. We've done a few things. We moved through content, but also I hope you're picking up some ideas about how to read these books in a new way with a... A fresh set of eyes that helps you tune in more. And I trust that we learned uh, some things about Jesus today, too. So more to come on that front. So see you next Wednesday. Do you have yeah, a final yeah.